This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. and welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. In today's show we'll hear from two more local art collectors about what inspires them to collect, how they've built up their collections and what pitfalls they've negotiated along the way. But first, here's DPAG Society President Ross Curry with an update on the local arts scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, we're focusing uh, this week solely on Dunedin Public Art Gallery. Lots going on. Indeed there is, Sally. Entering the galley, there is an unnerving gigantic rabbit lying dead or dying in the foyer, with its tongue hanging out and one eye closed. Michael Parakofai has called his rabbit Jim McMurtry. McMurtry was the first president of the New Zealand Naturalisation Society. He was responsible for introducing alien fauna and flora to Aotearoa, so there's an implicit indictment of environmental destruction from colonisation. But like most art forms, interpretation is in the eye of the beholder, and visitors in this case are invited to start to form their own narratives. And we should perhaps clarify for the benefit of listeners that you've just freaked out completely, Ross, that the rabbit is not in fact a real rabbit, it's a blow-up. It's a blow-up job, and it it gets deflated every night. Excellent. (laughs) What's happening upstairs at the DPEG? Well, upstairs, Reuben Patterson's gold and glittering tree shines out on the foyer and the octagon. Enter the front first floor gallery after the tree, where you're invited to be visually greedy and curious, and to use your imagination. Clap your hands and make the leaves fall. And you can sing a song as well. Where does the sparrow tie in with your narrative? Move through to the next gallery where Oliver Perkins' exhibition explores a wide range of painterly dialogues. One painting is within another in these pieces. Spot the parts. Beyond this you can explore abstraction in art. Drawing from the works in the gallery collection, the paintings show different ways of exploring abstract concepts. In these paintings, forms, ideas and emotions are expressed through visual languages. My favourite in this show is the Gretchen Albrecht painting with its spring-like joy and beauty. Bought with society funds, Imogen Taylor's painting, another word for abyss, is also on show there. And Ross, I think there's also the very wonderful Jim and Mary Barr collection. That's right, Sally. The bars have been collectors of mainly contemporary New Zealand art since the 1970s. They assert that art collecting should be, quote, partisan, passionate and political, unquote. Their collection includes emerging as well as established artists, and a large proportion of their collection is on long-term loan to the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, so lucky us. The main gallery is deftly divided into room-like spaces for this exhibition, which is called On the Table. A selection of artists with work in the collection have been asked to shape this particular exhibition. Some of the items in this show could be puzzling, and there is a booklet available with commentary from each curating artist, which will help to throw some light on their choices. 
In the Central Gallery, Christopher Ulutupu, the 2022 Creative New Zealand visiting artist, shows his new work, The Fall, which speculates on what post-capitalism might look like. His performance works are set against Otago landscapes. In all, there's much to see, much to learn and much to enjoy in the current selection of shows at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. And it's very warm, so a great place for a good wander around in these cold winter days. That's right. So as always, DPAC is clearly the place to be. And now it's time for our feature item. In today's show, we complete the three-part series on how to collect art. First up, Ross Curry talks to Ross Grimmett, former Associate Professor of Chemistry at the University of Otago and an avid art collector. Ross Grimmett is a former president of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society, and today I'm sitting in his house which is packed with art he has acquired over the years. In the hallway, art is from the floor to the ceiling. Ross, welcome to Sidelines. Ross, when I see the sheer volume of art you've collected, I wonder how you've organised it. Has the sheer size of your collection been at all problematic? I think I collected rather more assiduously than I should. I became very interested in art once um, Anne Garden, my wife, and I got together here in the early 1980s. She had a couple of pictures uh, with her uh, Anina Jeans and a couple of Myra Kirkpatrick's. At the time, I was interested in the Art Society and the Art Gallery Society, and I'd always been interested in art. And so together we sort of said, let's, let's start to collect some art, and maybe when we retire we'll have a gallery and an antique shop. Did you have similar tastes and motivations? To some extent, initially, I think we did, because um, Anne was always very keen on the uh, early women artists of Dunedin, and they really hadn't been studied, I didn't think, to any extent. Uh, we started, in effect, collecting uh, some early women artists from the art society. Uh, it then became difficult because, of course, once they got married, their names changed and it was very difficult to find that information. How did you start your collection? What, what was your motivation? What were your interests? I'd always, I say I've been interested in art. I drew as a kid. My father was quite a good artist. But, of course, my whole career was teaching chemistry. And as part of that, I got interested in the chemistry of paints and pigments and how pictures were made up and how forgeries were done and how forgeries were detected. And Have I spent, you found any forgeries yourself? There are one or two forgeries in the house, yes. Uh, one... I was caught by the others I bought, suspecting that they were forgeries. Where have you bought your art? A lot of it was bought in Dunedin at auction, uh, one or two through uh, galleries like uh, the Marshall Seifert Gallery. But on sabbatical leaves in the UK, uh, we in fact bought quite a lot of stuff. Um, so I, I spent time in Devon, in, uh, in Manchester, and Milton Keynes, and Birmingham and so on and so we attended auctions and we particularly were looking out for initially for New Zealand artists but it went more widely than that. I got pretty interested in some of the really good etchers. I love black and white work and so Frank Brangwen and others like that were fairly avidly collected when available. 
What useful advice have you been given in terms of buying art? I think the main thing that was said to me, and I don't know who said it, was buy what you like. And uh, we didn't necessarily always buy what we liked. We, we occasionally bought names, and that was not always a good idea. Why? Well, some names really aren't as good as, in fact, their names suggest they'd be. Have you ever been given misleading advice? or? Yes, yes. Uh, I have... Uh, I have had people say this is a really good picture from time to time. Uh, and when I did my research, I found that it wasn't as it was said to be. And there was a certain amount of um, skullduggery that goes on in the art world, shall we say. Were you a victim of some of that skullduggery? Yes, yes, I was. I have a couple of examples now which uh, I should never have bought. But in fact, they're... Uh, examples which make good talking points when I'm talking about the collection. And speaking of talking points, you've got one piece which I think is really interesting from a notorious resident of the former Seacliff Psychiatric Hospital. Tell us more about that piece. Well, it's a piece by the infamous Lionel Terry, who had, was really a sort of a white supremacist in the early years of the 20th century. He apparently shot an elderly Chinese man in Wellington, I think about 1905, uh, and spent time in prison in Sunnyside, I think that's at Sunnyside in Christchurch, but he wound up in, in the um, Seacliff Mental Hospital, where he was a, a feature for many years, and he dressed uh, in a sort of uh, biblical clothing. Uh, there's, in fact, there's a, a self-portrait of him, I think, in the uh, Hocken, I think it is, uh, of him sort of in white robes with his beard. But he used to walk about, he did the uh, gardens there. He started the paint. Most of the ones I've seen are rather dark pictures, looking through dark trees out towards the sea. And the one I have there is just one such example of that. So the man was probably pretty disturbed. Uh, the interesting thing about that one was that uh, it was painted on a plate from the Seacliff kitchen, no doubt. And on the unglazed back, he's written a very much anti-government poem, which adds to the interest of the picture. In terms of cataloguing and organising the record-keeping for your art, how have you gone about that? About uh, 20 years or so ago, I started to make, sort of do a, a self-valuation. There weren't any valuers in Dunedin, so I really had to do it by myself. And uh, I put together uh, a catalogue which had the dimensions of the picture, how they were signed, uh, where they were signed, what was the medium, and so on. Uh, in recent years, I've decided I need to leave a much more complete catalogue for my uh, whoever survives me and has to deal with it. And so I've had a friend in who has an art history degree helping me now for the last couple of years. And every picture now has its own individual label, which has details about the picture. Uh, it, there is a, a code which says where it was bought, roughly what was paid for it, what conservation's been done on it. And there should be plenty of detail on that now for anyone to identify any picture in the collection. With your collection now, tragically, you're, you've been losing your sight. 
How, how have you been dealing with that in your collection? That, that's been difficult. Um, I think I've got used to where things are in the house and I can actually go to a picture and say, I know that is a picture, uh, say, painted by James Scott and it's Half Moon Bay and, and there is a yacht in it and so on. Uh, and it sits on the wall in a particular place. So I've, I've still got some peripheral sight, um, and, but the central sight is completely gone, uh, unfortunately. So I can't enjoy it as much as I used to, but I know it's there. And, and you can remember a lot of it. I can remember an awful lot of them. Mm. Good. Well, thank you very much for joining Sidelines, Ross, and best wishes for your future. Many thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ross. Our next guest is David Bell, a former professor of education and lecturer in art history with a particular passion for the art and aesthetics of Japan. Welcome to Sidelines, David. You're a graduate of the Dunedin School of Art, yet you did not describe yourself as an artist, being more a teacher. What did you take away from your course? It was back in the day, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, it was a pretty broad and general course. I would consider it to be pretty old-fashioned now, but the two things I think that were the strongest was I brought away a rich interest in art history and theory. I, I, it was an area that I really liked. I liked the balance between practice and, uh, and academic investigation. And an interest in particularly the, the interface between drawing and printmaking. I, and honestly, I'm not a great draftsman and I'm not a great painter, but I really liked the technical procedures and processes of printmaking. I found them fascinating. And you did a workshop with Barry Cleveland at some stage in Christchurch, right? Yes, yes. Just the year after I left uh, college, I went to uh, art school. I went to the College of Education in Canterbury, and one of the things that we enjoyed was a, a workshop with Barry Cleveland. And that was... Um, that was three solid days of hands-on etching, running the whole gamut from dry point engraving through hard ground, soft ground etching, aquatint. It was a fascinating insight into the way he worked, which was which was a privilege really. But it was also a fair, he he's quite fascinated with artists like Goya, who were leaders in the field, who broke ground in the field and. That took me to them, and again, the art historical interest fused with the the process interest. And between the two, I I think that really informed both my teaching subsequently as a secondary school teacher and my own practice. I worked for several years printmaking. I had a couple of exhibitions. They weren't particularly successful, and that's because I wasn't particularly inventive in my printmaking. It was pretty early in my life, in my career. I think you need to mature a little before you can really crystallise an art project. And Barry Cleveland would have been at the early stages of his career, was um, Well, no, Barry's, Barry's quite a bit older than me. He, um, he had worked at uh, Timaru, at the Timaru Herald for some years, and then moved through to Christchurch. He worked at uh, the School of Art and the Polytech. Uh, Polytech first, I think, then School of Art. So what's attracted you to teaching and helping people to learn about art? Teaching, I had an interest in teaching before I even left school. I didn't enjoy school 
immensely, but I had a couple of teachers who were quite influential. I think it was the way they could engage with young people that I, I enjoyed. I, and I still, I have to confess, the reason I'm still teaching part-time now is simply because I enjoy the company of my students, the professional company of my students, immensely. And I always have. So it's as much a social thing as it's about art. But also, teaching and learning and art is a pretty powerful medium for informing really important uh, ways of, of learning in young people's lives. And it certainly helps to really like the learners that you're teaching, doesn't it? Sure does. Sure does. <laughs> um, you had a slow emergence in liking woodblock prints, but there was somewhat of, of an epiphany when you were exposed to 300-plus Japanese woodblock prints from Fred Storb's collection. Many of these prints are now in the Dunedin Public Art Gallery collection. Fred had visited Japan to learn about ceramics with Hamada and Bernard Leach. Tell us about the impact these prints had on you. Um, it was a bit of, it was an epiphany, it's exactly the word. I think that was the first time that I saw a solid body of work in any art form. It was in the days when art galleries, particularly public art galleries, had one work by each artist on the wall. There was no sense of getting an insight into a creative process. But here there was. There was another appealing, I was quite interested in uh, uh, Russian icons at the time. But I particularly like those sort of, faces, facets of colour and line, linear outline and so on, and pattern and design. And I found the same thing in the Japanese print. So I had a medium there that I was I, I, I was engaging with. I quite liked that. There was also, I think there was also a feeling of something of a privilege. And by then, Fred's collection wasn't just the works he had collected in Japan, it included those, but also the works that his teachers had left to him from the larger quantities of, of works that were collected in Japan by members of J-Force. And it's to our, our luck that a lot of those pieces are now in the Dunedin Public yeah, Art Gallery. Yeah. Some gorgeous pieces there. Um, you did your doctorate on Japanese printmaking. Earlier there was little published by the Japanese themselves, and the first foreign source texts were predictably Eurocentric. How did the more recent Japanese-led research speak to your understanding and appreciation? They've changed the whole picture quite dramatically, and I, I'm thinking particularly in, in Japanese-informed research of the last 30 years, because the European uh, research began in early Meiji uh, after um, Americans in particular uh, moved into Japan in academic positions and engineering positions and so on. And they had uh, an historical perspective on art. The Japanese perspectives that we gained more recently in the West, at least, looked at in different ways. They looked at, uh, they looked at the poetic character of prints. They looked at the contextual character of prints. They looked at the inventive character of prints. Rather than seeing them as an historical sequence of events, they saw them as an expression of, they used the term ukiyo, Floating world sensibilities, sensibilities to do with uh, with enjoying the moment, and quietly linked to uh, Buddhist 
notions of the same word as meaning the sad and sorrowful world. It's a nice model for art appreciation, isn't it? It's quite nice. It certainly kept me well entertained. What did you look for when you were purchasing your Japanese prints? Uh, I was pretty naive. Uh, My first one was a gift from my brother, and uh, I still enjoy it to this day. It's it's been on the wall for 40-odd years now. When I got to Japan and I was buying prints, my first... uh, I looked at prints that embraced as many technical processes as they could, embossed printing, overlay printing, um, inclusion of gold dust and gold flecks in, in the pigment, mica printing and so on, simply because when I brought them back, I wanted to use them with my students in, in secondary school, senior students doing printmaking. Um, I could show them the techniques. I could show them how they looked. I could show them the scale. Uh, and I could show them how they informed sensibilities about which the kids enjoyed, or the ones who, who were doing printmaking enjoyed, um, in ways that they could redeploy in different ways in their own work. You bought your first print in Caversham, Dunedin. Tell us about that. <laughs> it was a chance discovery. There used to be quite a few um, curio shops. There's a, a polite word, perhaps. Um, and uh, they quite often had pretty messy prints. They were badly foxed and so on. But I found a beautiful print in beautiful condition. It's a Renaissance piece. It's a portrait of a man called Leonardo Bruni. And I was particularly fascinated by both the subject and the engraving. The engraving was lovely. But the subject was interesting because I was doing art, studying art history at the time and I was doing a paper on Piero della Francesca. Piero della Francesca got his big break in painting a group of, uh, of frescoes or completing a group of frescoes that someone else had walked out or died, I think, from memory on. And Leonardo Bruni was the man who actually saved the day by employing Leonardo to complete the rest. It's a, a cycle of uh, the story of the f- true cross. In a sense, all the prints I've brought after that have had a personal connection like that. Turning now to New Zealand prints, who are your favourite printmakers and how do they appeal to you? Um, I met Marilyn Webb when I first came to Dunedin and uh, apart from anything else, I just, saw the inventive way in which she used the surface of a printing plate. Uh, way more inventive than anyone had taught me back in the day. And I liked the way that she brought both a, a greeny ethos to that, as she called it, but also there's, there's uh, particularly in the Fiordland works, there's quite a hint of old-school New Zealand romanticism there. So I quite like that. I also particularly like John Drawbridge's work. Um, because of the the sense of order, and again the 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 working of surface of the plate, and interestingly, both of them are ex students of the college where I work, so as was Ralph Hotteri and and various other uh, artists of their era. Preserving prints can be a bit of a challenge; they're all on paper. How do you go about preserving your collection? 
Um, I keep them dry. There's a dehumidifier. I keep them. The big thing with Japanese prints is light. Light is our enemy, particularly with fugitive colours like uh, yellows and and so on. When we see Japanese prints in museums today, often their colours are, are green. For example, has turned purple, or a purple has turned green. They they change quite dramatically. Um, so I keep mine in the dark. By and large, the ones that you see on the wall here are. Pretty badly faded. Some were faded when I first acquired them. Uh, some, sadly, have faded a little since I've had them. Uh, so they're the ones I, I live with and the others I live with on occasion. And do you occasionally treat yourself and have sneak peeks oh, yes. at, yeah. at the ones in drawers? <laughs> yes, yes. So we, we have several nocturnal pleasures. One of them's YouTube evenings and another, <laughs> another one's enjoying, enjoying the works. So how do you assess where we're currently at in New Zealand with printmaking? Is this still a popular medium? Are we thriving or otherwise? Well, I think we've lost some things that we had when I was training. And one of them, well, it was just when I began teaching, really, was the emergence of print studios around the country. There were a number who, who embraced painters and even sculptors into their fold and, and developed a lot of prints. Uh, Marion Maguire still does this in Christchurch, and and I think what that's done is it's brought uh, the work of a range of artists to a lot of people who might not other otherwise engage with them. Which of course is what Japanese prints were about. They were you know just a couple of dollars each. They were ephemera. But I think a lot of those have not survived. Uh, what I do find now is though that our whole concept of a print has changed. Prints can be the size of an art gallery wall. Prints can use digital technologies rather than woodblock or acid-based etching. So technology is given a lot more scope. Uh, it's technology. I think it's the gallery world. I noticed when my son went through art school, he liked to work big because that was what a gallery wall was like. You know, I think most most young people would like to think that people are going to collect their work. I hope they do. Yeah. So how has collecting Japanese artworks impacted on your teaching and research? Well, I, I guess I've covered teaching a little. The thing that was important for me was when I did my doctorate, I did it on the iki ethos and, and the technical procedures of, of printmaking for Japanese artists. What I find now is that I've become quite interested in both how artists learn and therefore how my students learn art because it's not we're not born with it. We have to mm. learn it somehow. How do we learn it? And then beyond that, what is it that really informs a, a creative process for anyone? What are the skills? What are the processes we use? And, and that really, I think, is... Uh, been the hub of my Japanese research in recent years. David, thank you very much for joining Sidelines today. It's an absolute pleasure, Ross. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our two collectors talking about their journey today. Join us next month when we'll hear from the custodians of the extraordinary Dunedin Public Hospital art collection. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society websites. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and our producer Jonathan Quayorf. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.